You are listening to an RPA production, where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, RPA is proud to present Aaron's Horror Show with Aaron Frail. This is Jason Witter, author, illustrator of Tiniest Vampire and Monsters Eating Ice Cream, and you are listening to Aaron's Horror Show. Welcome to Aaron's Horror Show. I'm your host, Aaron Frail. On Aaron's Horror Show, we're going to go ahead and read some horror fiction and talk about horror in all its forms, books, movies, you name it. If you want to go ahead and get a hold of the show, you can go ahead and contact Aaron's Horror Show at Gmail or Aaron Horror Show on Twitter or Aaron's Horror Show on Facebook. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hi, welcome to Aaron's Horror Show, and I'm your host, Aaron Frail. Do I have a movie for you this week? Ooh, boy. So, you know, you probably wonder why I watch these movies so you don't have to. And for me, it's it's like the same concept of, of people kind of rubbernecking on the road uh, when there's an accident, you know? So they, they're, they're, you're driving down the highway, and then traffic starts to slow down. And really, the only reason why traffic's slowing down is because everyone's kind of craning their necks to see the accident on the side of the road, to see what's going on there and for me i i often will see a movie and and see that it is a accident of fiction uh you know and i just got to see this accident of fiction kind of play out and i also really like i very rarely stop watching something because it's bad you know i i usually like will stick with something all the way through to the end because I really just want to see like where they're going with it, and and because of that, I've actually seen a lot of movies which you know either a later on turned into a mystery science theater three thousand episode. There was this a uh, movie called Future War that I I saw, and then uh, later on I saw that it was a mystery science theater three thousand episode, and I was like so excited. I was like, oh, I saw this movie before it was mystery science theater three thousand. This is going to be amazing. Uh, you know, so I often, uh, I often will, you know, stick with something through the end and I don't know what it is with me. There's just some fascination with it. And, and, you know, and it, it, you know, I do like watching good movies too. I'm not so obsessed with, uh, with, with the sort of accident of fiction that I, I, I purely just watch those. It's just that there's something kind of fun and funny about it. There's a, you know, I, I'm a humor writer in in the sense that, uh, you know, I wrote a lot of comedy in college. And, you know, I think comedy and, and kind of, you know, <laughs> not really well thought out fiction have a, have a, or a, a lot in common, you know. Uh, I, I think movie was popularized uh, just recently uh, with the movie The Disaster Artist. Uh, so, you know, uh, with, uh, man, I'm linking on his name uh james franco yeah so uh james franco did a movie called the disaster artist and it's about a guy that made a bad movie it's another bad movie that i had seen 
before uh <laughs> before this movie with James Franco was made. It's interesting because the 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 movie it's called The Room and The Room was such a kind of train wreck of a movie that you know originally the filmmaker had intended it to be a drama and eventually build it as like a, a a dark comedy because audiences were laughing at it and you see that's the difference they were laughing at it not with it but you know the guy kind of went with it and just kind of rolled with it and so i do appreciate it and i think that's why the the Disaster Artist uh, was made, which I haven't seen yet. I really do want to see that one. But yeah, you know, I, I think it's the same reason why The Room got popular, why I like to go out and find these gems for you. Uh, and, and this particular one this week really intrigued me because because of my kind of obsession with comedy, and especially horror comedy. I think, you know, horror and comedy like peas and carrots or like macaroni and cheese. Uh, I don't know, horror comedy I just think goes really well together. I don't know, there's something about it that really intrigues me. And it's interesting because you really got to do it right. And so the movie that I saw this week was is called Saturday the 14th. And that title, like, immediately drew me in. Saturday the 14th. I knew it was a comedy. Instantly, right? Saturday the 14th. Oh, by the way, made in 1981. 1981. The Friday the 13th movies were coming out around that time. I'm trying to remember if they were before or after that. But pretty sure after, you know? So, anyways. Even if it is before the Friday the 13th movies. You know, Saturday, Friday the 13th. Everyone knows that. The unlucky day. So... Of course, Saturday the 14th, you obviously know it's going to be a comedy. And, of course, the cover, you know, kind of shows that it's going to be a comedy. And I was thinking it was going to be something akin to maybe Rocky Horror Picture Show in the sense that it was going to be a, a little bit of spoof on it. But it just turned out to be just one long kind of mildly uncomfortable joke after another and and not even uncomfortable in the sense that you're particularly you're not really ever grossed out by the movie at all uh you're just it's it's like the entire movie was written by whoever's writing the jokes on popsicle sticks or laffy taffy right so like the screenwriters that got down to create all the jokes for this movie are like literally the same people that right popsicle stick or laffy taffy humor like that's the jokes we're dealing with here right maybe if you're like five years old or, or something you're gonna be like that's the funniest thing ever but you know when you're <laughs> any other age <laughs> uh you're like uh yeah yeah you know <laughs> and that that was kind of kind of the humor throughout saturday the 14th so uh, a spoiler alert, not that there's really much to spoil in this movie, uh, but man, it, it, it starts off kind of on the wrong foot in the sense that there's these couple that are trying to buy the house, and one of them is literally dressed like Dracula, like we're talking the Halloween costume variety Dracula, you know, like the 
the Dracula, you know, uh, <laughs> that you would see at sort of like an office party. Uh, now, you know, I have to give it some credit. It was made in 1981, and vampires weren't cool underworld vampires that wear black and sit around and, and listen to gothic music or tattoo drug-using vampires like in Preacher, you know? Like, yeah, the, the vampires changed a little bit since this movie, so I'll have to give it some credit, but, you know, it, it's kind of really silly that there's these two vampires trying to buy a house, and then later on you find out that they can't actually buy it because it's already been given in a will to this family. So, you know, the reading of the will kind of sets up the the Laffy Taffy humor in the sense that uh, the lawyer that's reading off the will is sort of like, and to you, Aunt Edna, I give you 4,000 overdue library books. Yeah, literally, that's what they said. Ho, 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 for what is she going to do with 4,000 overdue library books? Oh, ho, ho, that silly guy. And so eventually the family gets the house and they move in and then, you know, the son, while he's messing around with the house, he finds the ultimate book of evil or something. And yes, no, I, I'm not joking. It's called like the evil book or something. It's like, it's like the most generic, you know, most ger generic like book exactly what it says it, it is, you know, like, you know, like, like most authors and, and writers kind of, when they tr think of names of their books, they usually try and like hint at what there is but they're not like kind of on the nose about what what the book's about so you know for example if you were uh writing a movie about vampires that glitter when they come out during the day uh you might want to call it twilight right because you know twilight it's about vampires huh see there's a little bit of thought behind the title this is like literally the title of the book is like the book of evil and so the kid uh opens this book and all these monsters kind of like pop out of the book not really pop out they kind of disappear from the pages and and then they appear somewhere else in the house and what's really funny is like the kid somehow like decides to keep going you know it's like if i opened something called the book of evil and i saw this like creature disappear from the pages before my very eyes i probably would shut the book at that point <laughs> i mean just saying you know, like, and then I would be looking for that creature, because I would, I've seen a lot of movies, uh, I think I know what happens next, right? <laughs> so instead, he just, you know, lets all the creatures out, and, and, you know, not that that's scary, by the way, because these creatures are, like, the most useless creatures imaginable, like, literally, you can, like, step around them, and that's more often than not how most of the people that encounter a creature in the movie do, they just sort of, like, kind of go back and forth for a little bit and then walk around it eventually you know uh like i know slow moving creatures were a thing like especially back in the 60s like if you look at like some of the old star trek with captain kirk episodes the creatures are moving like so slowly that you can just have a cup of tea and maybe read a newspaper or something while you're waiting for the creature to come get you you know so like i know there's a point where slow moving creatures were were a thing, and, and, you know, not that I'm saying they're not a thing, like The Walking Dead, the zombies are pretty slow in The Walking Dead, they don't sprint or anything like they do in Dawn of the Dead, so they're, they're slow moving, but, you know, in The Walking Dead, they at least, 
eventually overwhelm you, right? It's not the fact that they're slow moving. It's the fact that there's a ton of them. They have these sheer numbers, right? So, so like that, they still make the zombies pretty scary in The Walking Dead, right? They still have the potential to get you. Whereas like the monsters in, in Saturday the 14th, in addition to being even very obviously like people in weird monster suits, they're literally like incredibly useless at uh, slaying humans. Like, if it's, like, the ultimate book of evil, you think it would have some pretty ultimate evil and not... Like, I want to say more, it's more like the useless henchman book of evil, you know? <laughs> like, like, these are not even, like, henchmen worthy of dying in the first act against James Bond, you know? Like, these were rejects from the stormtroopers, right? Like, the stormtroopers are like, oh, no, man. No, we don't, we don't need you guys in our ranks. Like, we at least can shoot our guns and run. You guys can't even do that, so sorry you can't be a stormtrooper. Yeah, we can't hit anything with our blasters, but but at least we could shoot them. Whereas, like, you know, if you gave a blaster to one of these monsters, they probably would, like, bang it against their head for a while. And, and, and speaking of which, there is a scene, actually, where the teenage daughter, like, inexplicably, she's, like, walking to the bathroom and ends up in the kitchen not really quite clear how that happens, but uh, she's in the kitchen and all the monsters are there, like, making a mess of the place. Like, oh, those silly monsters making a mess of the place. One of them squishes the orange juice container and orange juice gets everywhere. And then she uh, avoids them by kind of just walking around them. Once again, they're useless. There's a human standing right there. You can eat that, right? Teenage girl. Prime thing to eat in a horror movie. But no, they, they can't even get her. Uh, you know, and, you know, I have to maybe give it some credit. Maybe the monsters were so useless because they were going for a joke or for a comedy. But, yeah, that didn't really work. So, anyways, the family, you know, eventually finds bats in their belfry. And uh, they call an exterminator. And, and, yes, it literally is bats in the belfry. Hello out there. I'm Aaron Habel of Generation Y, and with me is Jack Luna of Dark Topic. We'd like to introduce you to Marooned, a new podcast that's sure to capture your attention. Tales of the catastrophically lost are what we have to offer. Hikers swallowed by the woods, explorers discovering nothing but destitution, true crime calamity, oddities of harrowing human experience. It's a museum of misadventure. Subscribe to Maroon wherever you find podcasts. We are waiting. Please hurry. Thank you. Uh, and they, they, uh, well, maybe not the Belfry. I mean, there wasn't really a bell. It's more like the attic. But anyways, they got to make a joke. There's bats in the Belfry. Uh, so uh, they call the exterminator and, you know, Van Helsing is the exterminator, of course. And, and uh, he's... Uh, just the dude with the German accent, you know, typical Van Helsing character, and, uh, you know, he's looking for the book, and the kid doesn't know where the book is, because his mom cleaned his room, ah, oh, that's so funny, mom's cleaned the room, oh, by the way, the mom gets bit by the vampire character, and so she's kind of like, half vampire it's not really ever clear that she's fully turned or not turned or whatever like the vampire characters by the way are kind of useless they're always on the outside of the house like we got to get in there and get that book and then when van hilden comes they get really upset like 
Van Helsing's gonna find the book before us. We gotta find that book. And then finally, they just turn into bats and fly into the house and, and, and go looking around. And I'm like, why didn't they do that before the family moved in? You know, like, like I was thinking that maybe they were outside because they were following, like, vampire rules. You can't go inside unless you're invited or something. But no, literally, they could have been in the house the entire time. But for some reason, they waited till Van Helsing was there because, of course, Van Helsing can chase them away and kick them out of the house again, right? Yeah, makes perfect sense to me, too. So, uh, you go, you know, you, you have this party that's happening on Saturday the 14th, and all those kooky relatives we meet all come to the party, but they're more concerned about the bar than all the weird stuff going on. Ho, ho, ho. And then also the, uh, the guy that was delivering the Doritos also gets stuck in the house because at one point when you open the door to leave like blizzard outside and so they can't go outside in the blizzard because they don't have jackets I guess I mean I live in Minnesota man and if you if you don't go outside when it's cold then you literally cannot live <laughs> you gotta go outside so but I'm just saying so anyways the the guy delivering the Doritos, and they they try and make a joke of the Dorito guy because the father keeps asking, like, who is that guy? I don't know who he is. But he's the Dorito guy. He's the delivery boy from the grocery store. We know that. And, yeah, he just kind of hangs out, and then at the end, the guy kind of leaves. There's no payoff on the joke. I mean, you think he's going to, you know, like, kind of put the moves on the teenage daughter character because they're both maybe the same age. I'm not sure. Uh, but no, nothing happens with that. It's just literally like, I'm just a random guy that's just got wrapped into this and that's it. Uh, but anyway, so eventually they find the book and the vampires come in and, and the, uh, Van Helsing. And then eventually this is where the tables turn. You find out that Van Helsing's the evil one. And the vampires are the good one. And they have this really weird standoff at the end where they, like, make construction noises at each other. I'm serious. Like, Van Helsing is standing off against the vampires and they're just making construction noises. That's the, the popsicle moment for me. Like, I just ate my popsicle and I'm looking at the joke and I'm like, that's mildly funny. In a sort of like, if I really wanted to fall asleep at night, I could just get a bunch of popsicle sticks and read the jokes until I like drift off to sleep going, making construction noises. Uh -huh. So, you know, they make construction noises and then they say weird things to each other and they kind of zap animation at each other, but they're not really like truly like fighting each other. The best way to describe the standoff is if it was two dudes just kind of going, what? And the other person going, what? And the other person going, what? You know, like the puffing the chest out, going, hey, hey. Yeah, you know, like that. That's the standoff and in the end. And then, you know, the vampires eventually convince Van Helsing that, you know, if he destroys the book, all the creatures will always be out. And, and then they can... Van Helsing can take over the world, and really, it's a really bad plan, Van Helsing. I mean, I'm sorry, if you want to take over the world with the creatures, 
you're not going to do it from that book. I mean, those creatures are, are useless, right? So how are you going to, like, take over the world if you got if you got creatures that, like, literally, like, can't catch a kid or, or like, their biggest contribution is they smashed the orange juice carton, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, man, but, you know, got to rethink that a little bit about that, you know, whole end the world uh, thing. So, yeah, anyways, uh, after they, uh, after Van Helsing, like, destroys the book, all the creatures disappear, and so do Van Helsing, and you find out that the vampires were good. They were just trying to save the world from that book, bruh. And, uh, the family inexplicably moves into the house next door, which, by the way, are, the people are dead. Yeah, that's weird, right? So the house next door has a police officer and his wife living there. It's not really clear if there's anyone else lives there, but literally the police officer gets killed by one of the monsters in their one moment of non-uselessness. And and oh, by the way, I think that the the uh <laughs> the monster that killed the police officer probably did it on accident, you know, like he probably like accidentally tripped and then had his claw sticking out and, and killed the police officer you know i think that's you know i i really don't think the monster was capable of taking down a police officer i'm only saying so anyways the wife comes over later and she gets killed by a monster but not really i think she just more gets intimidated one it's not really clear what happens to her she's in a dark room and there's a monster there and then she screams and but they're useless monsters, so, like, really, did she just scream, and then the monster, like, screamed too, and they both ran out? That's what I think happened. But either way, this really twisted family just decides to move into their house, because <laughs> that's what you do, you know? When your neighbors are killed by monsters, you just move into their house, <laughs> especially if your house was full of monsters, right? So, so yeah, you know, something to be learned from Saturday the 14th. If you ever have neighbors that are brutally murdered by monsters, uh, apparently you can move into the house. I had no idea. There must be some, like, uh, there must be some legal precedent that, uh, is, uh, been set up where, you know, uh, <laughs> you can, you can do that. I'm guessing that's what it is, right? It has to be some lawyer. Saul. They called Saul. There we go. Let's, let's tie in some completely unrelated stuff, because... That's what this movie would have done. Oh, I shudder to think. But yeah, so the next time you eat a Laffy Taffy or eat a Popsicle and you get down to the joke, remember, you could be summing ultimate evil or a really dumb movie. Anyways, that's Saturday the 14th. And oh man, look at the time. You know, I actually don't think... I have a time for tuners this episode. Yeah, I, th I think this is a totally a movie critique episode. This is a lacking any sort of fiction whatsoever. Uh, let me go ahead and pull up the next chapter of tuners and see if it's something that I could kind of quickly, quickly do for you. If I can give you, give you something. Usually what I do when I when I do this, I usually have tuners already recorded. I usually, what I do is I record tuners first, 
and then I go back and I do my movie review. And the, and the reason I do that is because depending on how long the chapter of Tuners is, I know about how much time I have for the movie review. So I kind of keep an eye on the time and, and kind of do the the movie review according to how much time I have left from Tuner. So this movie, though, I just I had to get it off my chest, man. Like I had to, you know... It, it it's like I got back from Nam or something, and it was like, you don't know what I've seen. I saw Saturday the Fourteenth Man, and you just gotta, you just gotta go with it sometimes. Yeah, that that's about what it was. So let's see, chapter sixteen. I'm here on Tuners. It's a pretty short chapter. Maybe I'll read it. Okay, you do get Tuners. Chapter sixteen. Hey, look at this. I'm just. Oh, all in one. There we go. No cuts. All right. John remembered Patel's lectures only after he hit the tune button on his first solo trip. There were so many ways for an experienced tuner to bite it. A universe without the planet Earth would leave him floating in the vacuum of space without a spacesuit. A universe made of antimatter would most likely result in his annihilation. A universe with all protons would scatter his atoms. A minor change in the noise pattern of a universe could send him to who knows where. It was no wonder that all the tuners were young. Hearing diminished as people got older. Everything from listening to loud music, the roar of subway trains or airplanes, and even certain diseases cause hearing loss. Most people wouldn't notice it on a day-to-day -day basis. They would only realize the hearing loss well into old age after the cumulative effects over a life were stacked up, a frequency here or a tone there disappearing from a normal person's range of hearing didn't register. However, a 0.01% hearing loss would have big consequences for a tuner. 0.01% variation in the noise pattern was often in difference between the intended destination and death. The differences between universes were so small and subtle, but John heard them. He didn't have them quite memorized because the concept was so new, but a small frequency imperceptible to most people made the difference between arriving at Tuner's HQ and the dark warehouse where he ended up. Thought he was getting better, but apparently not. Through his earbuds, there was a very low, almost howl in the background that, in hindsight, sounded nothing like the tuner's HQ at all. He cursed himself for being so stupid and went to tune again, but something was off. His TF3 was heavy, too heavy to be something the size of a phone. Before he could touch the dial, he heard a noise echo from some distant part of the room that was obscured by the darkness. There were rows and rows of shelves with crates of various sizes. They were labeled with strange writing John had never seen before. The gravity was taking his toll on him. He was exhausted by the sheer act of keeping him in a standing position. Even Abby's hand felt heavy in his. John needed to get out of here, and fast. He dialed through the universes trying to find Tuner's HQ. A light appeared from deep within the warehouse. Voices seemed to be moving towards him with the light. John didn't have any luck finding Tuner's HQ before the two people holding some sort of lantern were almost upon him. John strained to drag Abby between the two large wooden crates. He could barely move his own muscles. Even this high version of Earth, much less her. Each time he lifted his leg to walk, he felt like... The people of Easter Island must have felt when they were dragging those giant stones across the countryside. As much as he pulled, pushed, and strained, 
She wouldn't budge. The people were about to turn the corner and John had to abandon her. So much as he hated doing it, John knew if there was any chance to save Abby, he would have to make it back to Tuner's HQ or else there'd be no saving. He forced his muscles to walk towards the crates. The men's lanterns illuminated the darkness around Abby just as John made it to his hiding spot. He attempted to stifle his breathing, even though he was winded from the endeavor. When John got a good look at the men, he saw the distinctive scar across the forehead. They were the cultists. However, instead of their distinctive bone armor, they were wearing brown robes. The first said to the other one, The portal opened somewhere around here. What's that? The other said. The two men moved like the gravity wasn't affecting them at all. It was no wonder they were such a fearsome opponent. Their sense of normal wearing conditions punishing compared to John's world. Even the atmospheric pressure felt it was compressing him. His chest began to feel like there was a weight on it. It's one of them, the first said. A heretic, the other said, and ejected his blade from his hand. John grabbed the hilt of a sword even though he probably wouldn't be able to lift it. At least he'd go down swinging. Cease, the first one ordered, and the second one complied. She is wounded and no threat. We must bring her to the High Priest of the Silence. The second gathered Abby in his arms like she weighed nothing at all. There's no way John could fight them, at least not in their own universe. As much as he seethed about the filthy cultists touching her, he was powerless to do anything about it. His best hope was getting back to Tuner's HQ. The cultist holding her tousled hair and said, You think we can have a little fun with her first? The first cultist slapped his partner and yelled, The High Priestess of the Silence wants them unharmed. Come before I serve your brain on Reckoning Day. As soon as they left, John fell to the floor in a heaving mass. The gravity was wearing him down. He could barely breathe. He took his last bit of energy to drag himself to the tuning point where Abby had laid. Lucky for him, the spot hadn't drifted or disappeared. He fiddled with the dial until he got the sound right. He was sure it was headquarters now. He hit the tune button and disappeared. All right, that was a chapter of Tuners. Now it looks like I'm out of time. So thank you so much for listening. You can listen to Real Paranormal Activity on Mondays, me on Tuesdays, Terry's Mysterious Moment on Wednesdays, and of course the Sandman's Lullaby, usually on Thursdays. All right, thank you so much for listening. And avoid Saturday the 14th. I watched it so you didn't have to.